Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another episode here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. Our guest this week is Jonathan Field. Jonathan's a Canadian horseman who has a very decorated horsemanship resume. Jonathan's competed in the 2012 and 2014 Road to the Horse. He's written numerous publications in equine industry magazines, produced his own home study educational material, has worked in the TV and movie industry, and travels a greater part of the United States and Canada doing clinics. Jonathan was a recipient of the 2014 Jack Brainerd Horsemanship Award. Over the course of this interview, we talk a little bit about his beginning, how a tragedy shaped his perspective on horsemanship, and how he's developed his horsemanship program into what it is today. Now, this conversation just scratched the surface of who Jonathan Field is and what his horsemanship program is all about. I encourage all of you to visit jonathanfieldhorsemanship.net for more information about his program, his clinics, and educational material. It was an honor to sit down and speak with a horseman of his caliber. Now, should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is Jonathan Field. Jonathan Field, how are you doing today? I'm great. Great to be on the phone here with you. Sir, I want to uh, take a few seconds in the early part of this interview and Thank you on behalf of everybody at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I know you have a terribly busy schedule and you just came off a tour and now we're getting towards the end of the year. So there's catching up in the holidays and all that sort. But thank you dearly for for spending some time to share your experiences and your views of horsemanship and life with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's an honor, my friend. So what's been new for you the last couple of weeks? I know you're just coming off of a tour. If you want to explain a little bit about what that tour was and, and now getting settled. Yeah, uh, each year I go out on the road and teach clinics and seminars and do expos and demonstrations and things like that with horses and and try to help people with their horses. And uh, that's where we met down in California there. I think it was last year, wasn't it? Yes, sir. We're coming up on a year now. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, just traveling around uh, and doing that really, uh, you know, really intensely this last about three months. And then I kind of wrap up before winter. And then, you know, in the middle of it all, though, we just did a move. So we moved from one place to another and we came to a ranch uh, up here. It's um, kind of like southern British Columbia uh, area, but it's uh, it's a nice place. It's 160 acres. It's very, very isolated. It's, uh, it's it, We're in the center of the 160 acres and the next stop behind us is basically Alaska. So Holy smokes. It's been a, yeah, I mean, there's really not much behind us. There's, we're, we're out in the ranch line country. We're surrounded by big ranches and crown land. So uh, we just got here. The kids are in new schools and in hockey programs and all that kind of thing. And uh, things seem to be uh, kind of settling, but it's all very, very new. I'm just coming back. I've only been here about 12 days, and they've been here since September. Oh, wow. So they're glad They're glad to have me back. Yeah, no kidding. And I was going to say, it's a, what a blessing in one regard, right, to, to move facilities and, and, and have the opportunity of that size land. And in the same regard, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty stressful making that transition with all you have going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's just this time thing. You know, there's never enough time. I, I said to Angie the other day, I said, Angie, I got to get down to a 14-hour day. If I can just get down to a 14-hour day, <laughs> then, you know. <laughs> and most people are complaining about eight, right? Eight hours is yeah, too much. Yeah, No, I, I completely get it. And I've as I've traveled my journey throughout life, I've found that there's not really a such thing as, as the right timing in life. 
No, that's right. right. The timing, it just comes when it comes. Yeah. yeah. You just got to go just for deal it. with it. Yeah. Go for it. Absolutely. So what's the plan for the rest of winter? I mean, you're going to stay home for a while before you go back out on the road. Any clinics coming up or, or just getting settled there at the ranch? I'm trying to, we're just trying to get settled. And my one, my one boy, he's 12 years old. I have two boys, Weston and Mason. And Weston is 12 and he's uh, involved in hockey. So I've got to go to a couple of games recently and I've really enjoyed that. So I'm going to try to bring him to every game and practice over the winter. I normally go really hard from, you know, I take a little bit of time off in August and then I travel and, you know, in and out from August till about the middle of November. And then I try to take from middle of November base to February, kind of March, you know, at home and doing write articles and produce videos and, you know, write books and stuff like that. So that's kind of that time and family time and normal being around and going to hockey practices. So one boy's off to gymnastics and one boy's off to uh, hockey on a regular basis. It's kind of one or the other. Uh, and that's been that's been great. And it's just great to be at this new place and kind of see the future, you know, kind of try to see what the future will be like living here. And it's a big move. You know, we moved. I was in 41 years in one place uh, most, oh, of my, wow. most of my life. Yeah, I haven't moved a lot. So, uh, you know, all of our family and friends, my main core of friends are friends that I went to kindergarten with and they're their children are friends with my children, and uh, it's been a um, you know quite a transition, kind of pulling away from that. But yeah, I was gonna say that's a big change. That's not a not an easy move. Yeah, it was a big one. They've all been up several times since we've been here, and they've been hanging out and coming to visit us. But we just we just wanted uh, you know kind of situate the kids a little more northern, a little more in an area we were closer to Vancouver before, so we we had a home near Vancouver where I was raised, a place called Abbotsford. And then my dad and I, about 15 years ago, bought a ranch called the James Creek Ranch. And uh, it's in a place called Merritt. So if you go a little bit northeast out of Vancouver, you'll get to Abbotsford. And more northeast, you get to Merritt, which is another two hours away. And then another hour from there, you get to Kamloops. And we're another half an hour out of Kamloops in a little place called Pinatan Lake. It's just a tiny, tiny little resort community, one community store. Um, and Kamloops is a bigger town. So we could have went to the Merritt Ranch. Uh, was a possibility, but there's just not really not much in merit for the kids in the future. So we're kind of thinking long term here. Kamloops is a nice city. It's in beautiful ranching country, and just it's just very nice located to Alberta. I do lots of you know Calgary and lots of you know Alberta all around Alberta, and then it's easy to fly down to the states from here too. So it's it's the right move. It's it's a beautiful location. It's it's a major adjustment. I didn't realize you know, as much as I travel, you know, I didn't realize how much changing your home, home, home. I know we even split between Abbotsford and Merritt at the other ranch for the last 15 years, but changing the complete home has been quite a deal. So I've only been here about, like I said, 15 days. My Wes and Angie and Mason have been here since September. So um, they're a little more acclimated than used to it, but I'm just kind of getting settled and figuring out, you know, what does what, what, does what and uh, where to go and what to do around here. Start that list of things to do, right? Oh man, that's the truth, my friend. So obviously you have a very well-decorated horsemanship history and career. If you don't mind sharing with people who may not be so familiar with you and your program, kind of where you got your start and how you evolved through life to, to the place you are now with your horsemanship. Well, I was really lucky. You know, I, my family was involved in horses. I, I was, you know, I was born into a horse-loving family. My dad and mom, even, you know, when they were kids, they actually rode horses to school, not out of love, but necessity. Yeah, they it wasn't uphill both ways because they lived in the prairies, but they lived in the <laughs> middle of Canada. And uh, they actually did ride with the horses to school. And uh, and then mom became more of a dressage enthusiast or passionate about dressage. My dad, he would start colts and he was a farrier and he was a working cowboy. Worked on, you know, thoroughbred stock farms and, you know, various things like that. 
So I kind of grew up in, you know, I did lots of 4-H and I had the background with the dressage. And then uh, as I got a little older, my, my parents brought us up into that Maritary where the other ranch is called the James Creek Ranch, where we, we teach horsemanship camps and do horsemanship experiences there. And it's all set up for that. So we'd go into that area uh, at a big ranch called the Quilshana Cattle Company. When I was about 12 years old, first time I went in and seen that country or maybe 13 my family brought me up there and we went and seen this real working ranch, a half million acre ranch and uh, a beautiful uh, location and all the dogs and the cowboys and, you know, there's no quads, no helicopters. It was a, it was a real working ranch and uh, fifth generation was on it when I was there. And I just seen that as a young man and I said, you know, beg mom and dad to let me stay. And, you know, so they would, they would bring me up there, you know, for the weekend or two. And then that evolved to where I eventually, you know, I, I begged them to let me out of school because I was in school. I was in grade nine and I was missing all the good times of year. I was missing the, the fall gather and the spring turnout and the branding. And so I went into uh, kind of a correspondence homeschool type of deal. You know, I tried to do that while I transfer back and forth between working at the Quilshanna Ranch and then at the busy times and then going back to Abbotsford, uh, back to home where we just moved from, uh, you know, to do some school and stuff. So at 15, I quit school and headed up to there and, and then, uh, it was through that process that I just, you know, I worked there till I was 18 years old, 19 years old, put, um, you know, six days a week on the back of a horse. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And it was a great time. I mean, long, long days. I had a string of horses. We had young horses that we would do like long, like circle work with like long circle, like where we go out in big pastures. Some of the pastures of the units, we called them were 25 and 30,000 acre units. So you go out there and walk, go through the cattle and, and, uh, and you would learn what horsemen were, what cattlemen were, what you know, these, these men and women that could handle dogs or cattle or horses. And, you know, they were just so, so, so much steward to the animal, you know, just the, their life revolved around their dogs and their horses and cattle. And it was just a wonderful environment to be in and be there as a young guy, kind of going through that 14 to 18, 19 year old time in my life. And in listening to your history and your story, you recently mentioned, right, about the individuals being stewards of the animal. I know for me, when I started my journey back with horses, I got to a point where I just didn't, I didn't feel like we were making the improvements that I wanted to make. I didn't feel like we were, I guess, getting along would be kind of the easiest way to say it, the relationship between me and my horse. Was there a turning point in your experience with horses where you start to to understand and, and learn the animal on a deeper level and kind of work one in the same rather than, than two separate entities of human and horse? Yeah, I mean, there really was. It's a great question, Jason. You know, it's, what happened was, uh, I mean, I obviously, I had a deep love for horses as a young man. I, I chose that and I went to shows and did all the showing and stuff like that over playing football or you know, I played a little baseball, but I mainly picked horses and um, they were the most important to me. I was, there was 23 girls and there was me in the 4-H club. You know, I was, it wasn't like all my buddies were in it. Um, a yeah. couple of them, I kind of, you know, I kind of, you know, you know, conned a couple of come, come in, but when they had to start braiding tails and brushing and cleaning and they only lasted for a couple of months and they were on their way. But you know, so so it was a real passion as a young guy. And then when I ended up going up to that ranch, you know, I didn't, I still didn't know about what a horseman was or really how to have a connection or a partnership with a horse. I loved horses, but I mostly, you know, survived the day on them. I had to get the job done. I didn't know there was anything more. I had met, I think I was about 17, 18 years old. And I had, my mom hosted a demo for Pat Pirelli. And I remember watching Pat one time in our backyard, she hosted the demo and he brought this horse and he had this little blue roan horse named Scamp. And he had it in a, in a small pen, well, a fairly big pen, but it was in this big 10 acre pasture. 
and he had set up this little electric fence and it wasn't even hot. He just had them out there grazing and he lifted up the fence and there's about four or five horses in this big kind of a, in this big penny kind of setup. And he made a gesture and she, and I was a working cowboy at the time and she walked away from the other horses and walked to him. He lifted up that wire fence and she walked underneath and then he walked out into the open 10 acre pasture and walked over and started the demo. And I remember sitting there, I was, you know, maybe 17 or something and uh, I was a working cowboy at the time and I remember that morning when I went to work I worked that morning, I roped my horse to catch it in a round pen with 30 other horses. I went to work that day, came down in that evening, I watched the demo with Pat, and I thought, he just walked his horse across my pasture. There was no fishing line, there was no trick, and it was like a little <laughs> seed there. It was like, look at that. And I had Border Collie dogs, and those Border Collie dogs loved to be with me and all that, but I still had to rope both of my horses, <laughs> you know, my yeah. ranch horses. Yeah. And then that was a little seed. And, and then I just, I, you know, I was just so, I was trying to work my way up to be a straw boss, which is kind of like the second in command on, in a cow camp. And we were living in the cow camp and there was eight or 10 cowboys and a cook, 10 dogs. And, you know, we were living where the cattle summered. So that we kind of went where the cattle went. And, uh, there just was no time to kind of pursue it. I was just trying to stay out of trouble, you know, not, you know, stay out of the, you know, be in the right spot and learn the job of being a working cowboy. And, uh, so I couldn't really, pursue what what i'd seen that night you know i i, I wish i could have but i just didn't have my head around it enough i was 19 and i had left the ranching experience and i went to work on some drilling rigs to go you know just try to go make some money and pay some bills and do things do some things i wasn't a good enough cowboy to get a great wage and i don't think cowboy wages are great wages anyway so yeah, i was gonna say i don't think that's ever gonna change <laughs> no so i went off to drilling rigs and and my my dad had gone from the horse world into the drilling world and, and he had water well drilling rigs and I got badly injured at 19 when I went onto those rigs. I was only there for about a month or two. And I got just really, really badly injured. I cut my left hand off. I reached in to pull a cap off a drilling rig and a big 500-pound piece of steel came down and, and uh, trapped me onto the rig and took oh my, God. my left hand off at the wrist. And all but a half inch of like tissue was holding on just close to my uh, kind of the pinky finger side of my wrist and my thumb and all of that and the tendons and the nerves and the arteries were all smashed and chopped and cut. It was really, really just a devastating thing. And I was way back in the bush in a, in, um, in a town called Hundred Mile House and we were in the bush another half an hour from Hundred Mile House and Hundred Mile House is a pretty small place. So at that point, um, you know, obviously that was a real changing point. I, they flew me to Vancouver. I had all these surgeries and I was in a really state of a really difficult state in life, but also just trying to recover. And I knew at that time I wanted to get back to horses. I woke up in the hospital. I said, no more drilling rigs, family business or not, or whatever. And obviously my family was very supportive of that based on, yes, me, absolutely. you know, being massively injured. Anyways, it was quite a trip back to town, you know, from where I got injured to get to the hospital, all those stresses that came with that experience kind of stuck with me for quite a while, but it, uh, it really changed the course. And I was, I, I started watching DVDs of horsemen, specifically Pat Pirelli the most, because he had left a five set of DVDs with, or not DVDs, they were VHS tapes at the time with my mom. And she dug them out and said, Jonathan, why don't you watch these? When, because that was after I got out of the hospital, I got home. That's what I was going to say. Is this something something done to kind of pass the time during recovery? Not to mention your your, your interest in it. Yeah, exactly. It was both. Yeah, and I wore them out. We actually bought another set. We wore them out. I just and I just wanted to be with horses. Number one, I didn't want to think of all the trauma and all the stress that went along with what had just happened. And it was just like an escape. I'd watch them three, four in the morning. I mean, six hours, seven hours a night, let alone what I would do in the day, just watch them. Because I had to keep my hand above my heart and I had to, you know, all this stuff had to be 
you know, done and, you know, you had to keep your hand elevated and, you know, had to change the bandages and you had all these things had to be done. So there's a lot of... Quite the process. Quite a process every day. So I had a lot of time to sit there. I had a lot of time on my hand, I'd like to say, <laughs> but I couldn't do too much. <laughs> no kidding. So in listening to your story, especially when we talk about physical trauma and you talk about the process of bandaging and keep your heart or your hand above your heart and all that sort... I've had quite a few previous guests who have suffered, you know, pretty substantial physical injuries in their journey throughout life. And a common thread that I find, and I've experienced it personally myself, is that it's almost easier to recover from the physical trauma. However, the psychological trauma, right, the mental health side of it, is sometimes a little bit less forgiving in the recovery. And and I find it funny that that we have a process and a way to fix the physical side of it, yet it's not as commonly known or practiced to fix the mental health side of it, right? The psychological portion of, of that traumatic of an incident. If you don't mind sharing, kind of going back through your story, how did that injury affect your mental game? And what was kind of your growth and recovery in that side of the process? Mm, yeah, it, it was, um, you know, you're, you're dead right that, you know, the physical side is one thing. Um, you know, first they had to put everything back together and they took nerves out of one leg and 24 inches of nerve out of one leg and an artery out of another leg. Oh, and Jesus. They had to stitch all the tendons. And I mean, that was a lot of physical stuff. They had all this steel on my hand. and But that was bad. My hand the size of football, all of those things. And the pain was ridiculous. It was really difficult. But it... It healed up, uh, it, you know, in time. I did, I did two years of physiotherapy and all of that. And the thing that shocked me was the mental side. You know, I remember when they, I realized I needed help was I had a Ford Ranger. Um, it was what I had bought and I had been going back and forth to the ranch with my dog Snicker and my saddle. And, you know, I was 16 years old and I threw my saddle in and my cow dog and away we went up to that ranch up in Merritt. And I thought, you know, life was just unbelievable. You're on top of the world. I'm on top of the world at 16 years old. You know, I was heading off by myself. When I was in the same truck, you know, only three years later, and I was driving down a road called Bradner Road where I lived in Bradner my entire life. I was now pretty physically, I was driving myself to physio and, you know, the stitches were all out. You know, I had such flashbacks of the, of the, and, and trauma like in my body that was coming up that I would have to pull over. I couldn't keep going and, and I couldn't believe how much of a physical the mind would put on me, like how much it could take over, you know, and if you were to ask me like, you know, like say a counselor or a psychologist or a dude asked me, I remember I was a working cowboy. I could, you know, I left school early. I could, I thought I could, I could chase bulls. I could rope bulls. I could doctor a foot rot bull. I could, you know, whatever. Yeah, I you're could. young, capable, able human yeah. me. If you, no. you said, well, what would a counselor do or something like that? I'd say, well, that's for the weak ones. I mean, we, I don't need anything. You just got to get, you just got to get out and get going. And when I found myself on the side of Bradner Road, laying on my truck seat, you know, wondering how I'm going to get myself home because I'd physically been taken over by my mind, I realized I needed help. And I understood what other people were going through that had this stress, whatever this was. And, and um, it was at that time that I, you know, I, I, I talked to, you know, my family and, you know, I just like, we need to do something here. And they all knew it. And so I met a lady uh, named Annette. Annette was a clinical counselor and she had dealt with uh, war vets that had had uh, post-traumatic stress and flashbacks and this kind of thing. And she had, she was just an amazing woman. She is an amazing woman. And she helped, you know, sit me down. And I was supported by, uh, the, you know, by the workers board to go see her. And they paid for her. And I, I seen her for two years, 
three days a week, 90 minutes each session for two years. Oh, that's a very and, encompassing um, program. It was a really encompassing program. And she she and her husband, Osam, his name is Osam, and he, he used to teach Aikido. So I would go with him about two nights a week into uh, a do. Uh, a judo dojo and he would do aikido at nights and he would do it with a couple of us and um it was between them and many other books and tapes and supportive family and faith and all these things that you have uh that over in that time i got to understand more about myself and um you know do the mental side and i would say the mental side took longer than the physical and um as a result you know of all of that i remember it's probably a year in, you know, maybe less than a year in, and I was sitting in a uh, in that dojo with Osam, and uh, he was teaching me Aikido, and I was there, and my hand, my hand was, you know, we could only do limited things. I wasn't really fully functioning yet, and I was struggling, you know, I was mentally struggling, physically, and when you're when you're that injured, everything seems out of your hands, right? You know, like from the moment. I left that drilling rig, I picked my hand up and put it up against my body and, you know, got myself to the hospital. But at the moment that I kicked, you know, I made my way into the hospital and there was no doctors there when I got there. So they couldn't do any drugs or anything like that. All, all they could do was stop the bleeding, which was lucky because we didn't I would stop I say the that's the most imperative thing, right? Yeah. And we didn't do that. We should, we went for like 20 minutes or so and didn't stop yeah. it. So I filled the bottom of this Jeep of this, this guy that helped save my life, a guy named Carlos Walsh, who actually had his leg cut off on a drilling rig. So there was three guys there. And one of them, uh, the guy that I worked with and my cousin, he really saved my life. He got it off. He took the chain and got the discharge swivel off. There was another older gentleman there. He passed out and Carlos seen what had happened. And he pulled his Jeep up right behind us and he was ready. He knew we got to get this kid out of here. I was 19 years old and, you know, he seen what had died and he had just showed up and we were sitting there with two big rigs. We couldn't have drove to town in an hour. It was just unbelievable luck and and uh i just blown away that carlos was there and and he drove up and uh he put me in that jeep where i walked into that jeep and we raced to town half an hour to town ran through stoplights and i remember thinking all as i wanted a drink of water i don't care when we go to the hospital or not i need a drink of water and i put a, over an inch of blood in the bottom of that jeep um, so you're gonna be a little dehydrated losing blood at that rate i was losing i was dehydrated and then uh we got in there and you know, so from that time that you basically, they take, you know, that you basically look at it like, well, they, they take over then the doctors, there was four doctors, there was, you know, an airplane ride, there was all these things. And then there's a recovery. And then you go to the, you know, you're in the hospital. I was in the plastics and burns unit in Vancouver general. And then you go from there and they send you to the hand clinic and the nurses come to the house. And so there's, you, you feel like everything is, is up to them to help you. You know, it's really out of your hands is what it, it basically felt like. And I remember I was about a year later and I was quite stagnated in my physical healing and especially my mental. By that time, I was I was with Annette and, you know, going to visit with her and I was still doing physio, physical therapy. And I was sitting in the dojo with Osam and he said, you know, I was, I was kind of, I don't know if I was whining or complaining, but I was, I was just, I was, he could tell the struggle that I was having. I was just, he knew that I, you know, I just was telling him, I just, I just don't know how I'm going to move forward. I, I've lost everything. I can't work my hand properly and I can't even, you know, drive my truck to town without having to pull over and lay there for 20 minutes on the side of the road and be worried or stressed and, and you know, barely sleeping at night and all these things. And uh, Osama said, Jonathan, you have two choices. You can choose to suffer or you can choose to heal. It's your, it's your two choices. And at that moment and the, and days after, I, I had not realized that I could put something into this because I thought it was all up to them. 
You know, it's going to be up to a net to say the right thing or do the right thing. It's going to be up to those doctors to do the right surgeries. And I was just going for that ride. And I didn't realize that I said, it's really, you know, I can choose to heal. I mean, I have something to say in this too. And or, or if I do nothing, I will be the one to suffer. And that's actually my choice. It was just the right time and exactly the right thing that I needed to hear. And it was at that time where all of the training, all the stuff that Annette had taught me and my family and, you know, my wife now was with me, um, Angie, you know, we were together then. We were together when we were 16. So we've been together ever since. So she was there through it all. And, you know, she didn't have the words or didn't know what to say or how to help me. So it was kind of a cumulative of all of the support around me. But it was that moment that I said, if it's my choice, if I can help with the healing of this, then I'm going to do everything I can. I'm actually going to be better for this or because of this than before it happened. And uh, and that's what I set out to do. And it just changed everything, Jason, for me. It, at that moment, you know, whether it was horses or whether it was uh, the, the healing itself in that moment. You know, I studied everything I could about horses. I read every book throughout history. I watched every video I could. I practiced with my mare that I, whatever I could do at the time. And I just, I wanted, you know, my goal with horses changed. I wanted, you know, I had a mare named Blondie and, uh, she was a, you know, quite a difficult mare when, when I got her. And she just really, you really had to earn it with her. And she was quite dominant and, you know, also fearful. So she had a little bit of both going on and she, she was a challenging horse as part of the reason I got her. And, um, but I didn't ride her. I just played with her, you know, kind of what I'd seen Pat Pirelli do and what I'd seen in the videos. And I did some Liberty and I, I played online with her and I did a little bit of riding. She was quite, you know, iffy to ride at the time. And I just, my goal had changed from getting the job done or winning the ribbon or something like that. My goal had changed to, I just want this horse to want to be with me as much as I want to be with her. And that was the fundamental change. And we would sometimes just hang out and I'd take her and I'd groom her, you know, and I was used to getting a horse at 3.30 in the morning, saddling them up, going to get another 30 or 40 head and jingling the herd. It's called or jing, it's actually called jingling the cavy. The cavy is the group of horses cowboys are riding currently. And jingling means you go out and find them and run them in. And uh, so I would get up early in the morning and go jingle the horses and work all day on the back of a horse. And it was about getting the job done. And now with Blondie, it was a different time in my life. And I just wanted her to want to be with me as much as... So she was my daily escape. And it was the only... Whenever I was watching those videos or thinking about horses or being with her uh, and, and just, you know, smelling that horse and, you know, being in the barn, it's when I could not have any thoughts of anything else. And it was just one of those massively critical kind of, you know, valve, relief valves for me, I guess is what I needed at the time. No, it's in, it's incredible in listening, listening to your journey, right, in that recovery. And while you're describing that incident in the Aikido studio when the perspective changed, I mean, I think to myself as you're describing it, what an empowering moment, right? You think that you almost have no control over the situation at that point as far as all these consultants or experts are kind of telling you how to do things and, and what your next step yeah. is and, and how you're going to do it. But for him to shed that light and, and give you the power to make the decision, right? I mean, what a, That's right. what a huge change in perspective. And this has been a huge drive for this podcast is that there is not a soul that walks this earth that has not suffered, yeah. experienced trauma, felt alone, felt down, right? We've all had our dark moments. For me, it was a very, very small shift in perspective. It sounds like it was literally one question for you, posed to you, that truly impacts a lifetime of change. It, it, it absolutely, you know, because I was young, I was, I was obedient, meaning like I wanted to do the best I could 
at physio and the best I could with Annette and all of that. But I was listening to everybody else, and that's what I, I needed to be doing, is listening to everybody else to learn to show up on time and do all these things, the physio appointments and all whatever I had to do. But I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that I could have such an impact in my healing and uh, in, in my, my physical therapy, what I did at home and my mental, what I focused on and, and how I could help that. And, and it, what, it changed how I went, conducted the rest of my life. With any setbacks that I've had, and we've had lots over the years, you know, and just trying to, you know, do this horse thing or just trying to raise boys or trying to, you know, and challenges with, with you know, different things with families or any you know, aspect life in of general. life. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that perspective change and that dojo, and, you know, it was an accumulative decision. The power of that decision was accumulative because of all the, all the, either A, the trauma that had happened to get there or the B, all the help that kind of led me to that. But, realizing that I'm going to take this as an opportunity to be better than rather than be worse because of. Correct. And I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head right there. And in, in speaking with many of my guests, trauma or disparity is often accompanied with the opportunity to grow. However, in going through the trauma, it's hard to see that opportunity. You know, you almost have to take a, a third person perspective on it, look at it from that quote unquote 30,000 foot view to to see it. And that's that's where my perspective has changed throughout my life is that just because something is difficult doesn't mean that you have to get caught up in that, right? It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to learn. And, and as you talk about being young and, and working through your physical therapy and all of that, I attribute all of my success, especially when I was young in my early 20s and college years. The only reason I was successful as I was is because A, I was competitive, right? I just wanted to be better than everybody else. And B, I was truly afraid of failing, I did not want to fail my parents. I did not want to fail myself, my coaches, my teammates, any of that. Over the course of this podcast, I heard a perspective of another individual who actually trains martial arts and and has had a very, very successful military career, that he invites failure into whatever he's experiencing. Because the sooner we get to failure, the sooner you have the opportunity to learn. Now you have to have the right mental go for when when taking on the challenges but as soon as you fail or the sooner you fail the sooner you have the opportunity to learn the sooner you have the opportunity to learn the sooner you have the chance to raise your own bar right and that's where growth really really takes place so over the last few months for me i would say six to eight months i mean in everything that i do you try to challenge yourself to the point of failure because the sooner i get there the sooner mm-hmm. I, can, I can raise that bar and you you know i guess it's different for everybody when or ever, you know, I hope everybody gets there. It's it, to get to that perspective. Like, you know, that military person you described, I was listening to a, a great interview the other day with a, with a Navy SEAL. And he said exactly the same thing. He was talking about, you know, about the, about failure, about setbacks, about trauma as, you know, just like an intrinsic opportunity to be better, to, to, to learn more um, and do the morning that's required and everything else that's, you know, that happens with these types of things. But, but I'm like, how did that young, because he was a young Navy SEAL. I'm like, who taught him that? How did he learn that? Like, how come I wasn't taught that so early? How, how, you know, you know, and when things are dark and things are, you know, sometimes it is just one foot in front of the other. It's not just like there's yeah. there's trauma and then now, oh, and the next day you're better. It it took me several years, but, you know, in those years, I kind of, you know, it was a metamorphosis that took place and a different, and it was just, there was up days, there was down days, and then you go up and you go back down and you go up and back down again. And it continues, you know, the, the, your whole life is fulfilled with, filled with those. But I think if, if I can think about my boys and think about, well, how did that Navy SEAL get it without having to get his hand cut off? Yeah. How did that yeah. military person that you talked to have that 
so clear and and is it actually so clear do they struggle with it as much as we struggle with it do they you know myself i i i you know, you ask me, is there anything that I don't want to share or, you know, is there stress like this that, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm glad to share this with people because I'm on the other side of it. And I'm the more, you know, it's one thing to hear, say, Tony Robbins overcoming it or somebody that, you know, or some Olympic athlete or, you know, and even me now it's becoming, well, I'm on the mag in magazines or you know, I've got the microphone or whatever. Oh, it's easy for him, of course, because he's already there. Well, it's not like that. It, it wasn't like that at the time. Uh, this was years before I was getting calls for the major expos or, you know, it was, a, it was, it, it wasn't easy either. It was, but it's available. You know, that's the main thing. And, and how did that Navy SEAL get it? How did that military person get it? I know how I, how I got the perspective and I am grateful every day that I, I found that. I think about my boys. How do I give those boys that perspective on life? to be better because of uh, the trials and tribulations of life, to be better, to understand that failure is something to, you know, actually look for. And I, I talk about when you play with horses all the time, like oftentimes I, I take the lead rope off and play at Liberty. And when I find out when the horse leaves and runs away, I go, that's exactly what I needed to know. Because when I was playing with him online, I wouldn't see the line get tight right there. Correct. I wouldn't see, you know, but as soon as I went to Liberty, then I seen that and I go back online I could see, oh, that's where I was missing that. I had to go at liberty to find out where the horse would run away and where the horse would leave so I could look at my online better. You know, and that that's a key uh, shift. So I'm looking for failure now. I'm looking for when it doesn't work as the feedback to move me forward. How do I give my boys that? Because I still see my boy when he misses at hockey, slap the stick on the ground and think, oh, I'm a, you know, he, he'd be upset with it rather than going, I know exactly what I'm going to need to do next time. That's an, a very cool. interesting perspective, and in, in, in of all the the conversations that I've had and, and experience that I have in this this approach, I think that's a phenomenal question. I don't have the answer to it, but but how do you give somebody that perspective change who hasn't had the opportunity to experience the down, if that makes sense, yeah. right? The 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 low. Well, it's part. always it's always easier to sit at the top of the mountain and say, "Oh, this is how." But you know, there's a story I heard once, and, and this this person walked at the top of the mountain to go meet the master, got up there and said, hey, master, tell me the meaning of life. And the master said, uh, you bet, turned around and said, let's go back down to the bottom of the mountain. We'll do it together. You know, so it's the master knew that I can't sit at the top of the mountain and talk about it. Yeah. We got to go do it yeah. together to actually yeah. get it. So to pontificate it, you know, from the perspective of having been through a bit and actually finding some success and finding some peace uh, is always easy. But, you know, looking at it, like, how do we help you know, say my sons, you know, or, or, or my friends or students or somebody listening to this or somebody struggling, you know, from, from my point of view, I think, uh, you know, that, that if I hear someone else who, who has done it, who has some insights and some keys and understand that it's not easy, understand that some days it's one foot in front of the other. But if we can change that perspective, if we can use the leverage of adversity and, you know, I've heard one, a statement one time that said anger is the energy that God gives you to make change in your life. Well, that's the truth. That energy that comes with anger, the energy that comes with fear or stress, that is energy that you can use to make change in your life rather than having that be the energy that over overwhelmingly pushes down on your life. I love the adage you just said there, leverage the adversity. And that's truly what it is. And, and for me and my guest selection on this show, I really, really, really wanted it to be important and place a lot of emphasis on people that have been in the trenches, right? That have been there, done that firsthand experience because especially in today's society, there's so much emphasis placed on education and I'm a huge proponent of it. 
but the classroom is only going to teach you so much, right? You can only read that book so many times before you got to get out there and you have to feel it and experience it. And if we describe your or compare it to your Liberty Horsemanship analogy, I mean, you could watch DVDs on Liberty Horsemanship. You can read books and articles, but do you really understand what that horse is feeling and what you're feeling until you actually set foot in the arena with that horse? That's what I'm trying to create with this show. Try to give people some real world experience without having to go through the, the physical traumas of it. Absolutely. Well, and they say secondhand gold is as good as new. You know? yeah. So yeah. if you can get secondhand gold, it's pretty great. And you know, the thing with Liberty or anything with the horses is, is, is you know, I, I guess the bigger shift that happened to me after the injury is that is that I wanted my horses to want to want to do what I want them to do, like to have some, you know, a partnership, in other words, you know, to where there's a difference. I mean, you can do Liberty and you can do riding or anything, and it can be, there's a big difference between horsemanship versus horsemanship and um awesome. you know to be able to have a horse uh be a wanting and willing partner is a big difference just because your liberty doesn't mean you you can't threaten the horse with so much pressure that if they leave they'll have so much pressure that they need to stay and you'll see it in their attitudes and their pinning of their ears or their their postures if the, if it's if it's more force there than the desire for the horse to want to be there and for me, my horsemanship, my horsemanship program, what I teach people about is trying to get the draw in the horse to want to be with us as much as they did the herd. I don't know that I've ever achieved them actually wanting to be with me more than the herd. It's a pretty high bar, but it's the difference between having the horse want to move towards comfort than always away from pressure. So everything I learned, whether it was in any discipline I learned or anything that I learned you know, for a lot of years was about yielding a horse off of pressure. And then over time, incrementally, less degrees of pressure, you know, smaller aids, but still pressure, uh, still the threat of pressure if they don't respond, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze harder, I'll, I'll tap more or whatever the pressure is going to be. But there's actually something very interesting when you watch horses ride, you know, go with each other or move with each other. I, and I often think about it back to the days on the Colshanna Cattle Company when you're jingling those horses in early in the morning. And you're running little, running down these high hillsides and there's 30 head of horses. And there's always a lead horse, often a lead mare. And when she, when she turns left at that moment, everybody else follows her. And they follow her, they follow towards her, they follow towards the comfort of her decision. They're not going because she threatens and she kicks and she pushes each one of them over to the left. She just literally looks left and everybody looks left. And I'm thinking, man, they are following the comfort. They're following to... Now, at the time, I had no idea. I wasn't even looking. I was just trying to get the horses in, so... Yeah, so you, you know, get, I did, get a I start on the day. Breakfast. <laughs> yeah, but it was something I did every day for so long. You know, uh, that, that it, the memories of that and knowing who to steer, if I, if I could put the pressure on that mare to steer her, the rest of the herd would follow her. And uh, I might have to get way off to the right side and get her to turn to the left. And we used to have, um, you know, you yell off to the left or, you know, you or to the right and you put a hoot and a holler into the bush and she'd think you're over there. So she'd, oh, you're, there was always one spot when we came down. And if you could get them to turn left, you had them in the crowd. But if they raced you down this hill and it was a steep, slippery hill and pitch black. And, uh, you know, you'd race down this one hill and they get running faster. And then they turn to the right. It's another half an hour to get them back in because the pasture that they're in is, you know, at least 600 acres oh, is where they would live. So if they turn to the right, you'd have to, you know, almost do the entire lap. Now we're starting over. That's right. So you'd just try to do anything to get off to the right side and, you know, yell over there. You know, we had a stock with you crack the whip and try to make it sound like you're over there. But all you had to do is get her to turn left and they would all go towards that comfort of her or that decision. So it was, it was later on that I, 
I had a horse that I still have this horse and he's in his mid twenties now and his name is Hal and, and I made my career with Hal. I had him at the Western States Horse Expo, I had him at Road to the Horse, I had him all through the country, through North America. And um Hal has his own fan club, I think. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. But, um, yeah, Hal's an amazing horse. But I remember thinking, you know, I could do all these things with Hal, but there was still the more, if I asked him more, if I asked him faster, if I asked him more, he'd start to get more sour. He'd start to get, you know, there was a, a heaviness that came into it. And I really struggled because it was all around the pressure conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I figured out a way over time to get him to run towards the sweet spot, what I call the sweet spot, towards the comfort, more than moving to away from my leg. So if, say I'm going to spin him around, I'm going to turn him to the left. If I could make him, if I could cause him to want to run to the left into a place of comfort versus pressure him off of my right leg or my mm-hmm. right spur he would run into the comfort in the into the hole of the comfort to the left rather than away from the pressure so i had to provide him that comfort to the left i had to provide him relief there so he could go if i just get over to the left i get more relief turns out that was that's actually more powerful to get him to go towards that sweet spot than it is to get him to go away from the pressure he'll he'll run faster jump higher moving towards his comfort no different than than a horse that runs into a burning barn the power of home, the power of the sweet spot of the burning barn, the power of that comfort there or the herd mate, you know, is a very, very powerful thing in a horse. And I think that's a lot in all of us in life. If we can find where our sweet spot is, if we can find, you know, what is it that's going to pull us to comfort then versus then what's always continuously, you know, what we're pressing away from or pressing into. There's a lot more wind in our sails when we can find what's bringing us towards comfort than what we're pressing up against yeah it makes absolute sense that i'm i mean in essence you're playing off a horse's survival instinct right absolutely then one of their main instincts which is herd bounce which is to find the comfort of the herd it's a huge instinct and and so everything when i teach in my clinics that's the very first thing people learn i call it the sweet spot they learn a physical location of a sweet spot they learn how to put their horse there learn how to provide comfort for the horse there and then that advances through every i teach five courses and it advances through all five courses and i've taught people that are brand new brand new and people that are currently you know at the highest levels in their discipline uh even as of late uh some dressage riders that i've been helping lately and uh, just you know just very very high level riders you know top canadian riders top american type riders um uh, you know, helping understand this concept. I, I did one of the one of the things that I did recently, or you know, the last couple of years was partnered with a, a guy named George Morris, and and George's legend in the jumping world. And you know, and he he was like, this foundational knowledge that I'm teaching uh, can intersect into his world so much and have so much value. So as a result of that, combining what I do with what George is doing there in the jumping world from a foundational point of view has just made, you know, brought a whole new audience to, to what I do and, you know, filled up the clinics even more than they were before. And just teaching all these people of different disciplines, how do we get the horse wanting to engage with us, get into that partnership mode? You know, even as far as I, I had a my horse, Hal, I often will jump. I'll, I'll take him with no saddle or no bridle, put a single barrel upright and jump him over. I used to do this all the time, jump him over this, uh, over this barrel. So it's a three-foot-three jump, and there's no saddle or bridle on him, and you can't drop to a single standing barrel with nothing on your horse. You know, he can duck left or right pretty easily. What gets him to... Way too many options at that point. There's way too many options, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, and if you were to say, well, what's the trick? Well, there's no trick of it. There's a trade. And what the trade of it is, is that... I don't have the control, and I do have good control on Hal, and I do have good cues on with Hal, but I don't have the cues, even good enough, to canter him towards a single standing barrel 
and have him go over that barrel through the cues. So what gets through the pressures? What gets him over there? Because he knows on the other side of that barrel is a sweet spot. The other side of that barrel is a comfort. So in fact, if I put the barrel up and I do any, and put him in the horse trailer, whatever it is, there's a sweet spot in the horse trailer, there's a sweet spot on the other side of that barrel. If I put that barrel up, I have to hold him back from going to jump that barrel because the comfort or the pull of the desire to get over that is so great that I'm holding him back. He's going, when, now, now, now? And I go, not now, not now. Okay, fine, you can go. And he'll run over with me on his back and jump over that single upright barrel. It's incredible. I never experienced that. All the years I chased cows and, you know, did showing, it was always this submissive, you know, you know, get the horse to listen to you, make him this, make him that, to do these things, not have the horse have an engagement, have a pull towards what I want him to do. And that's what partnership is about. Like partnership, in a good partnership, if, if you're my partner, we're police officers, and if I'm your partner in this partnership, I've got your back, you've got my back, There's, I have responsibilities, you have responsibilities, and when you have a good partner, you know, you can rely on each other. Absolutely. And so many times, horsemanship doesn't have, so many times people with their horse, they don't have a partnership. The horse might listen at best and tries not to most of the time. So there's there's not really a partnership there. You know, there's this kind of one-sided, mediocre thing going. And it, you, don't, you can't get as much done. You can get a lot done, but you can't get as much done unless you had a really good partner. When you have a really good partner, they try harder, they jump harder, they run faster, they, they, they're easier to catch. That's number one. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they load in the horse trailer. That's number two. Yeah, their buddies can leave, and it turns out they stay because they look at you like, like you're like one of their buddies, you know, so they get herd bound to you. I always tell people herd bound is the best thing that I've ever heard, you know, best thing that it's ever happened with horses. If, if they weren't herd bound, I wouldn't know the first place to start with a horse. It's the best news of the day. I just need to get them to be herd bound to me. That's and incredible. Possible. And a lot of the popular horsemanship resources out there, right, talk about this concept of the application of pressure and you get your desired response and you let the pressure yes. go, right? So yeah. how, in your experience, how have you... How have you formulated this approach of, of seeking the sweet spot or driving that interest well, in the horse? Because I had I had heard one of the people that I really highly respected was that was that it's it's he, he said he said that most of what we do with this horsemanship today or throughout history is through the application of pressure and the horse yielding away from degrees of less and less and less pressure. And I agree, there's no question in my program and what I do with a horse, horses need to move away from pressure. There is that's where it starts. They can't come into my space and run me over and there's just, oh, we're going to have a sweet spot now. And, you know, it doesn't work like that. They, they start out moving away from pressure. And, and, and they, if they don't move away from a sl subtle pressure, I increase the pressure until I get the slightest try towards the direction I'm looking for them to go. And then I release the pressure, of course. So, so I do pressure as well. There's no question. But there's a point where I re Hal was getting more and more subtle and he wasn't getting more engaged. He wasn't getting... I don't want to use the word happier, but freer, um, with less tension. I, he was so connected to me. I called it connect, connection tension. You know, he, he was listening so closely. He just didn't want to be wrong. And you could just feel the tension of it. And when we played a Liberty, there was like when he went away, when he would break away, he would break away. He'd be like with me. And he, if he went away, he would break away. Like huge he was separation. Away. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, Oh, and it was almost like a relief to get away. And I'm like, this is not. This is not what I'm after, you know, with what I wanted to do, especially with the whole 
you know, real paradigm shift that happened in my life and specifically with horses. So there's got to be something more. And I remembered thinking back to that mare, those mares, when you're jingling those horses in. They, horses operate where, yeah, there's pressure, man. There's high pressure. There's high pressure where they'll take hide off another horse. Yeah, or biting and another. kicking and yeah. Yeah, so th- that part I don't dispute. There's pressure. There's no. I mean, I've, I've applied a lot of pressure to horses, or horses have applied a pressure to themselves up against me. However, you want to look at it. But there's got to be relief on the other side. And then, then instead of the pressure, can we replace the first application of pressure with? If you go there, you'll get towards comfort. If you can get to this sweet spot, you get towards comfort. And as they start moving towards the sweet spot, which is what I call a neutral sweet spot at first, and then something I call an active neutral sweet spot, and that's the place right in between my legs and my reins. So there's an exact location to be, physical location. It's like when you see a flock of birds or a herd of horses, or you see the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or the Canadian Snowbird Team, the aerial jets that fly and they're all they have this little sweet spot that they have to stay in if if, uh, some of the blue angels tightest formations like the blue angels have some of the very very tightest formations so if they just go you know down you know a foot and then the other person goes up a foot they'll clip wings so they have and they do all of these things with these planes that they have to stay inside a sweet spot well if a horse is being ridden and you see horses being ridden all the time the horse is on on the rail or wherever they're going and the person is pulling on their lip and the person is grinding away with their legs and their thighs and so forth. And the horse goes left and there's pressure. And the horse goes right and there's pressure. And the horse goes faster and there's pressure. And the horse slows down and there's pressure. And then finally the horse goes right where the person wants the horse to be. And there's still a pressure. Yeah. The horse says, well, there's no relief here for me. So the horse doesn't stop seeking relief. The horse says, well, I know where the relief is. The relief is over by the gate. The relief is with my buddies. The relief is back to the barn. So then the sweet spot becomes the gate, the barn, or the other horses because the horse finds absolutely no relief anywhere, left or right or forwards or backwards, up or down, with the person. They find no sweet spot. So that sweet spot between your legs and your reins or in a certain exacting location when you're playing with a horse at liberty or online or circling like you're lunging a horse around, if you can get that horse in that spot and then leave them alone, pretty soon you'll make your communications, you'll send your arm out or you turn your body or whatever you're doing to send your horse in a circle and your horse will go, I know where I'm going. I'm going to that location. I know I'll find comfort there, right? So I have, a, I have, to, you have to be very specific about what it is. So I have developed a training scale. Training scale has 10 ingredients. And the first one is, is an exact path. So if you're on this exact path, not to the left of it, not to the right. And when they're young, horses are young or green, the path is quite wide. The path might be like a railroad track, like four feet wide. Now, if you're on that path, you're within those parameters of that path, there's comfort. There's no comfort to the left. There's no comfort to the right. Well, how much pressure you do apply to the horse? Well, you apply the amount of pressure that the horse is desiring to push to the left. You equal that until they come back over to the right, and then you release it when they're on the path. Then the next, if path is a check mark, and you go, yes, we're on the path. Other writers call it the track or the line. If you're on that path, then the next thing is speed. And this is an order. It's a hierarchy of importance. So if you're on the path at, say, a medium trot, then I'll go check, check, and there's comfort there. And I reduce all the aids to be the absolute best rider I can be, to not do any extra, just what requires, to, you know, to go, but not in, don't work, don't pull on the reins, don't, you know, even if there's a, a slow horse, say, you know, oftentimes people say, well, I have to, like, feels like I have to pick my horse up over my shoulder and pack him around here. Well, I won't do any extra work for that horse. I will simply, if the sweet spot, say it's a medium trot and he's on the path and the sweet spot, the horse is behind me, what we call behind the leg, I'll squeeze my legs, lift my stick, squeeze, uh, tap the horse with the stick till the horse comes up into that spot. And the moment they do, I leave him alone. 
But if you grind them and take the job of it when they're behind the leg, and then you take the job of it when they're up at the speed that you want them to be, that type of horse will bog down and get thicker and thicker. That makes absolute sense. <laughs> yeah, and it works. It works amazingly. Oh, absolutely. On the other hand, if it's a horse that is, is way too impulsive and way ahead of the leg, well, sure, I'll pick up all my reins and I'll slow that horse down. He'll run into the bit. He'll run into the halter, whatever I'm riding him with. But the moment he comes back in between my legs and reins into that sweet spot, not left of it, not right of it, not faster, not slower, I leave him alone. And he might only make it for a second, two seconds, three seconds. I just make damn sure I don't bother him when he's there. And when he's there, I leave him alone. And and then the moment he pops out of it. So I'm like those blue angels. I'm right in that spot or the the Thunderbirds. I love, I love that. If I wouldn't have been a horseman, I would have been a pilot. How awesome of a job would that be? I'm so fascinated with those those guys that do the, do the Air Force flying and that. But So they have that spot that they have to be in, and that's the same as with me with the horse. So then the next thing is if the horse can maintain, let's say, six or eight laps around the arena or around a circle, and they require no corrections just to hold the path and the speed. They could do it just with our focus, and it was where we were looking. Now, there was no pressure to get there. It was just our intention. So I always say we're trying to reduce the pressure to get it down to our intent. So once our intent is there and they can actually stay on the path and the speed without a whole bunch of pressure pulling on the reins or slowing them or squeezing them or spanking them or whatever it is to get them to go, now you can say, okay, I can add two more layers. Now I can add bend in the horse, lateral bend, and I can balance the horse. And now now there's going to be some pressures because this shoulder is going to fall in. You're on the path and the speed, but that's not good enough anymore because you need to have the shoulder up. You need to have his ribs over. You need to have him balanced towards the outside. He can't be falling to the inside. So you make those corrections and then you leave him alone. And when he can do six laps, path, speed, bend, and balance, now I change the flexions and I lengthen the body or I shorten the body. So the longitudinal flexion has changed and then it changes into energy and upward we go through the training scale. So if we start too early and we say, well, this is a dressage horse, he's got to be in a working trot, he's got to be on the track, he's got to be in a short compressed flexion, working from behind, up in the shoulders, soft in the face, balanced and bent, and there's now 52 feeds that have to come into the system. To get the horse around the arena for two laps, where's the sweet spot? Yeah, it's so ambiguous. It with the rider. Yeah. So there's nothing but pressure with the rider. So now the horse says, well, the worst thing we ever want to hear when we get off or when we stop over by the gate is, ah, glad that's over. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it makes absolute sense. We need to have that horse finding relaxation, finding that breath, blowing out, finding the relief of all the pressures while... We are moving. And if we ask for too many things at once, we ask for path, we ask for speed, we ask for bend, we ask for balance, we ask for flexion, soft in the face, we ask for them to go toward the jump, we ask for them to slide stuff, all of these things, and they can't hold. I test some of my most advanced riders, and I say, I say, put the reins at the buckle, put them on the neck, now do six laps. See if you can do without steering that horse, without anything but your intention. And if it takes pressure on the legs, it takes pressure on the reins, it's not good enough yet to add in more layers. But when you can do those, basic fundamentals and you don't have to add in more layers like say you know you know you don't have to you know press the reins or slow the horse or speed the horse or whatever you need to do to cue him up to where you want it to be then you can add in balance then you can add in bend in the horse then you can add in all these other aspects it's absolutely incredible and i think the biggest hurdle for us is the human portion of this this equation is our awareness of ourself Oh, we're micromanagers and control freaks. Oh, and it's incredible. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and we totally are. And it's safety issues. So we get scared. So we get all these things that happen, of course. Yeah, we can't. It's almost to the point where we can't even fix ourselves to even start working on the horse. 
<laughs> well, this is mostly about us more yeah. than it is oh, about absolutely. the horse. absolutely. But it's the it's this perspective change that and and if you think about you, you, we've all felt it before, Jason. When we're riding around the arena and our circles are oblonged, like egg shaped, towards the gate, and and that just means that the sweet spot is over by the gate. That's that horse. So that horse pressure. might be circling yeah. physically over here, but mentally is over there. And that's a, a a recent perspective that I learned as far as. We'll take collection, for example, right? And a lot of it comes from the horse's body. And, and the unfortunate misconception is that everybody thinks you got to work on a horse's head to get that collection. But a horse can can physically give, right? So their head goes to wherever you're intending it to go. But but you got to get that horse to, to mentally give, right? Absolutely. Because you get those horses that'll start bobbing those heads up and down the arena when you're, when you're, when somebody's pursuing collection, right? Physically, they're giving, or physically, they're doing what you're asking, but mentally, they're not there. They're not connected. They're not involved. Well, their mind could be with their buddy, their herdmate, their barn. Their mind could be spooked about the other horses running in the corrals or the cattle out in you know, some pasture or something, car going by. And we don't have their mind with us right there. And and the challenge is, is, is that while we're trying to get their mind with us, if we do too much, we become the source of additional pressure. Yeah. So we have to do enough to get their mind with us and then leave them alone for those moments or two that they're with us so they realize there's actual comfort there in the connection with us. You know, we become, if we are looked at like the source of pressure, then the horse will end up having to tolerate us while they survive the rest of the day. Yeah, and not if, being willing willing to work. That's right. Yeah. And everything as dominoes, you know, fall away from there that, uh, you know, the, the connection falls away, the, the, the trust falls away, the leadership, the attention with the horse on us is gone. All of those things are all falling in a kind of a, in, a, in a line, in, you know, dominoes away from us. Yeah. I, and I just think it's absolutely fascinating, all of this, right? The pursuit of of trying to get between those horses' ears. And, and, and if you can really establish that relationship and that connection and that true mental commitment, the possibilities are endless. However, it's it takes quite a bit of discipline and awareness on the human's behalf to even start to broach these subjects. Absolutely. It's the fun part of the journey, partner. No, oh, it's the best part about the journey. I, I've truly, I have my own goals, right? And my own accomplishments that I'm striving for, but I really tried to take a step back in my journey I've really only hit horsemanship hard, really, really hard, I would say, over the last 18 months. And and I mean, truly, truly studying it and trying to commit to it. But I've really tried to take a step back in the last, oh, six months or so and really enjoy these moments, right? Where I'm at right now in that constant pursuit, you know, I'm I'm still working on that hillside, right? I don't know if I'll ever be up there shoulder to shoulder with these people, you know, that are, that are identified as masters, but I'm really trying to enjoy... Just the small successes, the small victories, the the small changes in perspective. I mean, it's it's infectious. It's addicting. It's <laughs> it is infectious, and and it's the rest of your life, partner. I'm still trying to do the same too. <laughs> and that's I I for me, that's the beauty in it. I mean, no matter how good you get, you could always get one stride faster, or one stride softer, or one stride quicker. It is a slow process, and I think for me personally, it's understanding that that. You as a human have to understand when it's time to walk away, when it's time to give them a break, when it's time to slow your pace, because competitive type A personalities want success. And, and you get a little bit, you want a little bit more, and you get a little bit, and you want a little bit more. But like you talked about, you can drive these horses to being dull because there's no relief or release for them in that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been absolutely amazing. So we sure have covered a lot of ground over the last hour in, in talking of your style of horsemanship and and kind of your approach to things. There are a few things I do want to touch on. 2012-2014, Road to the Horse finalist, mm. correct? Mm-hmm. I recently had 
the fortune of riding with Jack Brainerd. Oh, yeah. So wow. I know you were a 2014 recipient of the Jack Brainerd Award there at the Road to the Horse. Yeah. yeah. If you don't mind kind of sharing some of your experience and some of his influence on you, because I mean, he's truly a living piece of history. And, and I feel blessed to even spend one day, you know, under his tutelage. Mm. Well, it was such, you know, it was a real honor to, you know, I, I met Jack years before the Road to the Horse, and he was there in uh, 2012 and 2014, and then awarded me the Horseman's Award uh, in 2014. Uh, you know, just a true, uh, as a horseman, to be able to have him there watching and just even, you know, ask him uh, about what he thought, all of those things is just a, a highlight, let alone, you know, having him, you know, give me that, present me with that award. But I, Jack wrote a book, If I Were to Train a Horse by Jack Brainerd, and I read it years before I ever met him. And uh, I think, you know, she go, everybody should go take a read of the book. You know, he's just, you know, he's just a, uh, such a talented horseman that's been around for so long and studied and is inquisitive and continues to be, you know, just become better all the time and influence and help and mentor people. His passion for horses is, you know, unbelievable. It's just a really amazing guy. And the experience at Road to the Horse, you know, it, it was, I always, I always think about it. It just puts an amazing, like a, a laser beam on every skill you have, whether that's doing something in front of the public, because it's like 8,000 people, whether it's starting colts or whether it's, you know, I brought, I brought some of my saddle horses there. And, and that was one of the reasons that Jack also said, you know, I watched you with your, your riding horses. And he goes, uh, the idea of it is he said, if I have a hundred thousand dollar colt, who would I give that colt to, to start? And that's what kind of the premise on how he said he would pick the person that he wanted to pick at that time. And uh, given the horse that they had at road to the horse and whatever they were faced with, and I'm not sure exactly how he made this decision, but yeah, you know, he said, my watching my saddle horses and two uh, was also included in his decision. So Road to the horse, kind of whether it's your riding horses or your your, your colt starting methods, or you know dealing with being trying to teach and do things in the public, and you know all of those things. It it uh, it's just the ultimate kind of laser beam, uh, testing everything all in one weekend of what you've spent your lifetime really dedicated to, and it was just a highlight for me to be able to go there and be invited back again in 2014. So for those that don't know, can you explain uh, briefly the format of Road to the Horse and its intentions as an event? Well, the format is, is it's a really um, a neat deal where the, the horses that come are un, unridden horses. Um, they've had a very minimal handling. Uh, they come from the Four Sixes Ranch in Texas and a beautiful uh, bunch of horses. And they run a remuda in there. And there's, you know, three, four, two different, various years. There's different number of competitors from different countries. And uh, they give you uh, only a few hours each day. You only have an hour, hour and a half, hour and 15. It changes a little bit each each day uh, throughout the year or throughout the uh, each year to year but each day you get a little bit of time a uh, very short amount of time overall uh, on the friday the saturday and the sunday you get maybe three or four hours with the horse to be able to get the horse caught um, get feet picked up get the horse saddled get the horse rode go through an obstacle course and it's just unbelievable what a horse can take in i didn't know him it was dr miller that pointed out that the horses horses have the memory of an elephant and and are some of the fastest learners in the animal kingdom. And it just astounds me of what a horse can learn in such a short time, uh, given that they understand what you're asking of them. So it's it's a really kind of a an interesting event. Uh, and, and they call it the World Championship of Colt Starting. And uh, it's, it happens in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. It's a, a yearly deal. And I think it's absolutely incredible. What's driven me to horsemanship or one of the contributing factors in my pursuit of horsemanship is understanding that I only have so many days left on this earth and I got kind of a late jump as co as compared to most. 
and I need to be more efficient with my time, right? To make up that deficit and hopefully pass a whole bunch of people who who supersede me as far as years on. But I think it's truly incredible when you look back on that weekend and you talk about just a few hours of handling a horse and what these horses are able to do. And it's not like... Unbelievable. And it's not a clinical environment, right? You are not in the middle of your 160-acre property with with nothing but that horse to pay attention to, you know? I mean, you're out in front of a huge crowd of people and and obstacle courses, and and it's just incredible what you competitors truly put together out there. It really shows the expertise of a horseman. Yeah, and the amazing nature of the horse. You know, it's just, it's it's totally unreal. And I, I mean, I love... Being in it two times, I also love to spectate it if I can. And, and it's just one of those things where seeing everybody's different styles and how they arrive at different places with the horses. And, and I always really look at the horse. I, I always go, if I was kind of picking who I thought did the best with their horse, I would say, which horse uh, would I want to be? Which horse could I be if I had to be one of the horses in the corrals down there? So I love watching that aspect of it. Like, you know, oh, that was a good idea or that wasn't so much yeah. of a good idea. Yeah. And, and even watching my own, you know, oh, Jonathan, that was a good idea. Oh, Jonathan, that wasn't such a good idea. You know, you, you're, you're just trying to go with the go out there, trying to figure it out. Well, and perception is a big deal, right? You think, you th- you think you're physically doing one thing. I tell people, or this is how I explain the analogy, right? You can ride by yourself and you think you're riding balanced and you think you're riding centered and you think you're being forgiving, right? Now watch a video of that same exact run, and I guarantee yeah, your interpretation is going to be a lot different, right? So absolutely. So a lot of it is, is emulation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely incredible. So if you don't mind, maybe take a few moments. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up and getting towards the the latter part of our time together, I like to give you the opportunity to kind of sell themselves, and and I know we've talked a lot about your approach. Can you help educate listeners where to find more? Because I know you have a whole bunch of educational material out there and mm. resources available to the consumer. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we have uh, our website, jonathanfieldhorsemanship.net, and uh, there's lots of um, there's videos and um, lots of different you know ways. YouTube channel, people can watch lots of clips and stuff like that. Um, I've written lots of articles around the country and um, try to help people that way. One of the biggest things that I do is I have a home study program, which is called the Natural Foundational of Horsemanship. And it's for English, Western, recreational riders. And it's really kind of like, you know, leading people through, I teach five different courses and it leads people through the first three courses. And it's been an amazing thing. Uh, I, I made it in 2008. So uh, it's not in HD. You know, he put it on these massive <laughs> big screens and it looks pretty old. And I, I want to make a new one, but I keep going back to that. And I'm like, this is as relevant as and I, some of the stuff that we captured. is just I can't capture it again with some of these. I use many different horses in all of my DVDs. Uh, there's a Liberty, Liberty series there all about playing with horses, Liberty. And, a, and I recently wrote a Liberty training book. So there's lots of different products and home study programs and things like that. But I also travel and teach clinics and seminars around. And, and that's often the best way for people to kind of get started with what I do. Just come out and watch, ask questions, hang out. You know, if it's a clinic, come and spectate a clinic. You can come really, really reasonable fee, 25 bucks a day to come, uh, you know, watch, grab a coffee and a notepad, a comfy chair and a blanket and sit there and watch 12 people go through the clinic. And uh, we keep the clinic numbers down to about 12 around the country. And then we do horsemanship camps at the James Creek Ranch, which now is good because I'm only an hour away from there. And eventually over the next few years, we'll build this this place up to be a, a facility where we can bring people as well. But, you know, it's a wonderful place to go uh, kind of 
watch at a clinic and get all these perspective of these 12 different riders as they go through the three days. So, you know, we're just trying to get out there and, and help people understand. And it's, you know, I've been just so blessed to be able to do this and, and have people interested in what I do and, and want to learn and just seen so many people make so much change. And, you know, really my goal is to help them achieve their dreams with horses. And it's every discipline, every level. It's been really fun. It's led me from Wellington, Florida to Massachusetts to Pomona, California, and, you know, all over Canada. And, you know, it's just been one of these uh, just amazing experiences to be able to do this. It wasn't on the career counselor list at my school when I was going through, what color is your umbrella? <laughs> you yeah, isn't it funny, right? How life uh, life gives us what we need, good and bad, right? Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. incredible. And, and I can speak from experience. I mean, I would say it was by chance that our paths crossed. I think you were booked for another facility and they had some sort of issue, I, I think. Yes, I was. I don't know what that was, and and your clinic got moved to the facility I board at, and and by chance I I heard, hey, Jonathan Fields is going to be out here. I said I'll take a chance and and see what we can learn, and I mean it's just absolutely amazing, and and I've pursued the education very much since, and I feel very fortunate personally to be able to spend the last hour with you and get to know you a little bit better and and learn from you, and hopefully this is a beginning of a of a long journey for the both of us, and I appreciate everything that you're doing for the horse. I appreciate everything that you're doing for the human. I, I think it's absolutely incredible and in more ways than one. Well, thank you, my friend. A real honor to be involved in your podcast, and I just hope that you know uh, you keep going with this work. And uh, you know, it's, it's I love the uh, concept of how you started it, and I really think that uh, to be able to offer insights and help the people and share experiences, um, you know, whether it's with the horse or beyond the horse, it's just a really cool thing. And I really appreciate yeah, being there's involved absolutely here. So much value in in what the horse can do for the human, and I think it's an exciting time to be involved in this this field of horsemanship, A, because of the access to clinicians and horsemen of your caliber, but I think the overall awareness of the benefits of the horse and what it can do for people and and helping fixing some of their own issues, concerns, and problems is just, it's incredible. It truly is. Absolutely. Well, and I want to just say a personal thank you to, you know, in law enforcement and all the firefighters and military people, all the service people in in the country. I mean, what you guys are doing down there with the fires, we had uh, unbelievable uh, fires up here this year. And, uh, you know, what the firefighters were doing, what all the law enforcement people had to do and what you guys deal with. uh, If there's anything I can ever do to help in any way in the horse level or, you know, keep me in mind because I just respect and honor what you guys do so much. you know, very grateful to you. Yes, sir. We very much appreciate it. And, and towards the end of every episode, I like to give guests the opportunity to share any final thoughts or parting words. Um, you know, I, I guess the the biggest thing is just, you know, um, to try, you know, from my point of view, when I was starting out was to uh, try to encourage people to, if I, if I could kind of go back into my you know, into time and give my younger self advice, I guess, if I was thinking about it like that, is to try to really enjoy the journey of horsemanship. It's not about arriving. People like Jack Brainerd are, are still learning and people like George Morris are still learning and still, you know, pursuing this as passionate and reading the books. And that from that's from a horsemanship point of view. It's it's really about the journey. When we're in the, in the challenging horses, uh, diff- having difficulty with the horse is to be able to step back from it, um, you know, find a mentor, uh, get some help. Don't get wrapped up into it personally. And then from a, a person's point of view or a, uh, a mental side, from a, uh, the, the point of view of overcoming a, a mental health issue or something like that, that is, is something that is a post-traumatic stress, is that some days it's just one foot in front of the other. Um, and I would encourage anybody, anybody out there listening to try to, you know, take what we talked about uh, with, with the idea that we can be better for this and be worse because of it. 
uh, and I, I'm a believer of that. I, I, I feel like I've lived that, and it was uh, a lot of help that I had around me. But um, people are out there, and people are good, and they, they'll help. I think that our lives can change as a result of uh, adversity for the better in the end if if we get the right help and we have the right perspective. So I really appreciate the opportunity, Jason. And, um, you know, I just hope we get to cross paths again. And we're actually talking about coming back to California in March and coming right back to your barn. No kidding. I've been talking, uh, yeah, in March, middle of March in 2019. So it's going to be one of my first stops on the tour. Well, I might have to wander my way over there. Please do. <laughs> Jonathan, again, we thank you very, very much for your time and, and your contributions, and, and we are looking forward to talking to you down the road. Best to you, my friend. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.